Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on the podcast, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. We have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. And we have Noam, uh, who just we just lost. Noam Rosenthal is our guest. I guess we need to wait for him to join back up. So in the interim... Who are you? Say, yeah, I'll say that I'm Dan Shapir, and I'll be your host from today, coming to you from Tel Aviv, still under lockdown. Even though they are starting to relax these things a little bit around here, so we'll see what happens. Anyway, Noam, you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. So, Noam, yeah, where I'm are you coming from? I'm also in Tel Aviv from? right now. I'm currently in Tel Aviv, right by the beach. That's a definitely a nice place to be, assuming you're allowed to go to the beach. And not allowed to go to the beach, but allowed to see... Uh, the promised land. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com So today we're going to be talking with Noam about a really interesting topic. I think one that we're all excited about, which is contributing to the browsers and to the various web standards. So Noam, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Like Chuck says, what makes you famous? What makes me famous? <laughs> Apart from my very successful uh, albums that made me a rock star that nobody knows about. Um, <laughs> you do have guitars in the back. Yeah. A- apart from that, for several y- years, I've been um, kind of switching around between the web world and the native world. And uh, an interesting scene between them is the browsers. And uh, since... Uh, over 10 years ago, I've been contributing to uh, browser code. First at the Nokia, where we were uh, building uh, mobile browsers, and I was working on TV browsers, and kind of switching back and forth from uh, working on the browser to working on uh, websites and web platforms, like uh, how I was working uh, at Wix until recently with uh, Dan. Currently, what I do is I, I'm a freelance. Uh, I re- work by myself. And uh, what I do is I help uh, web companies. By web companies, I mean anybody with a website to help them improve the platform which is a uh, most rely on, which is uh, the browser. So that's what I do now. And I started that about a year ago and it's been pretty successful. I'd love to know kind of how you got interested in that, how you got started into you know, diving into the browsers themselves. It's something that I've been really, really interested in in my career in the past. And um, I think for whatever reason, not everyone is, but it is so valuable when you're trying to debug things. Because I think a lot of people just kind of like throw up their hands sometimes and, you know, the the reaction is like, well, this is dumb. Uh, or at least that's like, you know, and I was like digging, digging into CSS and stuff and how the browser renders things. But how did you get interested in it? And how has it affected um, the way that you write code? So at the beginning of my career, I worked on web, like HTML, uh, JavaScript in the dot-com uh, era of 20 years ago. And after that, I somehow found myself in the C++ world and working a lot on C++ UI and C++ frameworks. Predominantly, I was working on the, the Qt framework, which is a, a popular C++ UI framework. And as part of my work on that, I've kind of rolled into working for Nokia. And uh, at that time, there was a big fight between web and native. And I was talking about 10 years ago. Like, should we do this in an app or should we do this uh, on a website? I just never liked the idea of uh, app stores and about big companies like uh, Apple and Google deciding what we can or can't uh, provide to users. Uh, But the problem with web at the time was that it wasn't fast. Like, doing stuff in HTML was slow and was difficult and was memory consuming. Specifically, animations were very slow. And I remember that going to some contributor meeting inside Nokia. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go into the browser code and try to fix it so that we can have 
we can solve this problem of the web being slow. Um, so I guess having a C++ background helped with that and the uh, strong determination, I guess. And no. down the rabbit hole you went. <laughs> Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Noam. Uh, I'm uh, kind of a history buff, so this is my recollection, but uh, you probably know about this more than I do. But WebKit was actually born out of this browser inside Qt, which was being worked on in Nokia, correct? Uh, right. WebKit was born uh, from uh, the KHTML project, part of KDE, Linux, open source, uh, built by... Um, can say enthusiasts, open source enthusiasts, uh, that later worked on the Qt framework. Apple had uh, forked it the same way uh, uh, Google later forked uh, WebKit and they made it their own, uh, changed it a lot. So uh, KHTML was originally Qt-based. Later, Apple took it outside of Qt and then it, it went back into Qt. All of this speaking around 2008, Time frame 2007. So first of all, all of us who happened to see KHTML in the user agent string and had no idea what this meant, this is actually what KHTML means, like the archaeology of the web inside the user agent string. Right, exactly. Predecessor of WebKit. So at the time you were working on this stuff or starting to work on this stuff, was it already after Apple had adopted WebKit or before? After, after. Uh, Apple has adopted WebKit in, in the mid, um, in like early 2000, 2005-ish. I don't remember the exact years. But when I joined that, uh, it was already about applying, uh, implementing browsers for Nokia with WebKit. Uh, WebKit was already a pretty uh, mature project at that time and used in iPhones, etc. And how is it delving into browser code? I mean, how, from, you know, obviously I, I assume a lot of our listeners are, don't really have experience in C++, but how readable is this code? If I decided to dive in, you know, is this something that a, a regular mortal can do? I believe so. Like, it's good to have uh, some C++ background or to learn some C++ for that. Uh, but in some ways, browser code is, uh, is cleaner than a lot of the JavaScript code I've seen. Uh, C++ is uh, type-centric and compiled. A browser code has tons of tests, unlike a lot of the JavaScript code I've seen. Tons of tests. I had a follow-up question, too. So when I was digging into this a while back, as far as um, the rendering engine in Chrome, it it was kind of um, the hard part was getting it running locally um, to contribute back. Can you kind of talk about that process? Yeah. You know, I guess that's because I've had a, a leeway with C++ for quite a few years. I'm familiar with the, with the tool chain for C++. I think it's much easier than it used to be. Like they improved on it a lot, both in Chrome land and in WebKit land. I've recently had to uh, run Chrome locally, and uh, it seemed easier than before. I don't think it's more complicated than the crazy JavaScript tool chains we have today with all the Webpack <laughs> things that uh, run on top of each other and try to find NPM modules in all kinds of places. It requires patience, though. So you made a distinction between uh, WebKit land or maybe Fireland and, and Chrome land. Mm -hmm. um, can you contrast these two a little bit or maybe even throw, I don't know how much experience you have in that, but maybe even throw Firefox into the mix? Yeah, it was very interesting to work with the three of them. Also in standard land, I worked in, in, uh, with, with all three uh, entities, let's say. From a code, from code perspective, WebKit is much smaller. It's more like a, um, like a library for rendering web that uh, relies on uh, uh, the existing platform, like uh, relies on uh, the Mac, uh, the OS X libraries or the iOS libraries or uh, Linux libraries to, uh, to do most of the work or uh, a big chunk of the, of the work. Uh, Chrome is like, is huge. Chrome is like a, a whole OS, like everything is in there. It's like a Chrome 
replaces a lot of the things the OS would normally do. That makes Chrome and WebKit very different. Uh, on one hand, Chrome is a lot more complete. On the other hand, WebKit is a lot more portable. Let's say if I'd go uh, write a browser for a new platform, uh, I would start with WebKit. Like, uh, it's what's used today for, for browsers on TVs or PlayStation and platforms that are a little more uh, niche than uh, uh, the regular desktop and mobile platforms. By the way, you're saying Chrome, but I assume you actually mean Chromium. Chrome, uh, yeah, Chromium, WebKit, uh, and Chrome versus Safari. Can we make that distinction really quickly for listeners who might not be aware? Yes. Uh, one of them is the project, like the repository. And one of them is the browser, the product. So um, Web- WebKit is managed like a code project. Uh, it's, not on, it's not on GitHub, but think of it like a GitHub repo. It has like a contribution model. It has branches. It has uh, uh, commits. It has reviewers. Safari is a product run by Apple. So uh, Safari uh, takes a specific cut, a specific revision from WebKit, says that this is going to be used for the next Safari. They have their own Safari code, which is not open source, which has, uh, let's say, the Safari UI or uh, integration with search engines. And they bring it all together and say, here is the Safari technology preview. Here is the new Safari for iOS. Uh, same for Chromium and Chrome. Chromium is a project that is managed like a code project, and Chrome is a browser with a logo, with a UI, with integration to Google services, with all the extensions. I hope that's clear. It is. I was going to ask another question too. So, can you kind of talk about um, architecturally, like how things are laid out? I know, like from when I was digging into things. Um, like the browser is broken up into the rendering engine. And then like if we're talking about Chromium V8, can you go into more details about that? Yeah, I don't have an architecture picture in my head and the browsers are very big. <laughs> Probably high level, high level. <laughs> high, high level, yeah. So a big part of the browser is the parsing and rendering. Like uh, parsing is about making text into some kind of internal data structure. Yeah, after that, there is all um, there's the JavaScript engine, which is V8 Chromium and the JavaScript core uh, for WebKit. There, are, there, there is a big chunk, which is the network layer, uh, which handles all the HTTP, HTTP protocols and WebSockets. There are lots of other things like accessibility, editing, the different APIs, dealing with history, Support for Web Inspector, like the DevTools and Chrome, everything to do with the page. Support for different platforms, everything to do with styling. So SVG, which is a world of its own, is part of uh, those projects. And uh, Chromium has additional projects. One of them is is, uh, Skia, for example, which is the painting library. That is not included in WebKit. WebKit does not come with a painting library. You have to use whatever is in the, in the OS. The same with the low-level networking and a few other things. So as, as you just described, the browsers are, are huge. They're, they're kind of at the same level when, uh, where you know, we, we used to have operating systems. You, know, you mentioned Chrome, which essentially does uh, everything within itself, like the networking and the painting and handling the user inputs and, and whatnot. So that's obviously kind of intimidating. And yet we're talking about, in this talk, about contributing to the browsers. So if this stuff really seems intri- intriguing to me and interesting to me and something that I want to be involved in, how do I overcome this, uh, this fear? How do I get into it? First of all, uh, willpower really helps. But uh, there, is a, uh, there is another side to it. It's countered by a very uh, rigorous style, for example, style um, guidelines that are enforced. So uh, browser code is very um, consistently styled. Uh, You can search the code in a good way. Um, Variable and function names need to mean something and use consistent English. The tests are uh, extremely um, comprehensive. 
how things are laid out in the in directories and finance is a very well layered that's the other side of it it's very well managed it's also the very nice thing about working on those big open source projects is that you learn to work on these highly rigorous environments and it's, it makes you think that way like you need to be covered with tests you need your English that you write a code with to mean what what it does you need to not fall into those boolean trap pitfalls and other uh, anti-patterns of coding uh, so there are two sides of it and the other side is that it's open source so you can always ask like uh, WebKit has recently moved from IRC to Slack, which I was very happy about. And uh, there is like a newbies channel and um, lots of uh, uh, material online on how to do things. I'm not sure if it's open to everyone, but there's also a Chromium Dev Slack. Um, I just know this as part of the GDE program, um, but I'm assuming that if people were interested, they'd probably love to have people in there as well. Yeah, I mean, it takes some uh, awkward moments to be a newbie. Definitely. <laughs> uh, but uh, you just make a list of like uh, how many awkward moments you're going to have this week and you make sure you, you do all of them so that you can pass it. It's part, part, of, the, part of the drill is having some awkward moments. My, my first patch to WebKit had so many revisions to it, like uh, dozens of revisions until it got accepted. Uh, so many little awkward mistakes before I could uh, I could get it in. I always say to I mean people looking for um, you know now obviously I don't think that this would necessarily be the best um, thing to like bite off as you know a brand new developer, but even as you're like later on in your career, you kind of sometimes want mentorship. And I always think like contributing to an open source project is a really good way. Like you're describing, there's so many revisions, but you probably learned a lot in that process. It's kind of like free yeah. mentorship. <laughs> yes, I got a lot of mentorship through uh, my work on WebKit that uh, I could never get in a closed source project. But uh, actually, as a newbie project, I really recommend uh, web platform tests. It's, uh, it's the project that browsers uh, use to maintain interoperability and compatibility. It's just a bunch of HTML, JavaScript tests that all the browsers run to see that they didn't break the web. You mentioned your first contribution. So how many contributions have you had so far? I think around 150. Wow. I'm impressed. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Most of them were were at the time where I I was a uh, WebKit contributor for Nokia, and I became a WebKit reviewer at that time. And I was working very hard on making animations go work fast and uh, applying that to phones and TVs. At the time, Netflix were using uh, what we were doing at WebKit, and uh, we were working together with them. And uh, there was a phone called N- N9, which had all those improvements as part of its browser. Uh, and lately, in the last year, I had just a few, maybe 10. Can you give an example of some of the stuff that you recently added? Yeah. Um, what I'm working on now, which I hope that uh, by the time of uh, airing this, would would be in, I'm right now in the review process, is uh, implementing paint timing for a WebKit. Uh, wow, that would be awesome. I want it now. <laughs> what is paint timing? So basically, it's uh, measuring when a first contentful, contentful paint happened. So is that measuring like the first uh, bit of graphics or when uh, a complete image or something is rendered? Is it like the beginning or the end of the process? It's when something is rendered on the, on the screen that you can say is contentful. And uh, part of my work was in standards. Uh, I did a massive editing to the paint timing spec uh, together with Google, uh, Apple, and Mozilla. Uh, I'm, now, I'm now also an editor of the spec based on that work. Yeah, it, it measures. Yeah, I, we had to define as part of that what it actually means that something is contentful. Because the, the definition of that was, oh, Chrome implemented something. And it was like kind of a, a phrase that says what it is. And now there, you can look at the spec, but there is a very uh, specific uh, definition of what the first contentful paint means. Basically, when the first text arrives or the first loaded image or video starts, 
Now, to do that, I also added the about 25 web platform tests that cover all the different cases. Uh, before you continue, Noam, just to mention yeah. that I'll, I'll plug myself, but if you may, your listeners may recall in episode uh, 428, we actually did uh, the alphabet soup of performance measurements and uh, paint timings, first paint, first contentful paint, largest contentful paint were, were a part of that episode and some of the topics explained. So if people want to get more information about that, they can check out that episode. But please go on, Noam, sorry. So I wanted to say that um, who came up with this project is uh, Wikimedia, which is the Wikipedia company. They use uh, rigorous performance measurements, and they wanted to uh, make sure that um, they don't regress on uh, Safari, on iOS and Mac. Uh, so they decided instead of uh, asking Apple over and over again whether or not they would implement it, they contacted me to, to bridge it, to, to do it with them. And a lot of work, the work was getting everybody on, on board the one uh, uh, spec. Interesting thing was that Apple uh, did not want first paint, but only first contentful paint. Uh, that's because Safari uh, uh, has this optimization where it waits a bit before showing you stuff. Like it waits until it has a few characters or some pixels of loaded images before showing you stuff. So they don't believe in um, developers optimizing for first paint. And they, uh, that was another interesting difference between uh, Safari, between the WebKit folks or the Apple folks and the Google folks, is that the Google were very quick to implement it. And uh, the Safari folks were, WebKit folks were like, um, we want the spec to be very exact and rigorous or we write one line of code. And then... Um, uh, we got to a point where we have no blocking issues in the paint timing spec. And now uh, I'm going through re review cycles and hopefully by the time this is aired, uh, WebKit is going to have this in. Uh, another thing I've recently done is uh, uh, complete the, the image set, which is responsive images in CSS. The image set spec for uh, uh, WebKit. Actually, this, this is ready for WebKit before it is for uh, Chromium. Uh, allows better support for uh, uh, kind of like defining source set inside CSS. Uh, this is part of the work I'm doing for Cloudinary for uh, improving images and responsive images in browsers. Just to understand what it is. So this is kind of like the picture element, but for CSS? Yes, image set is uh, kind of an old spec, but uh, that didn't get enough love. Uh, it allows you, for example, to, to define a source set for a background image. So uh, we, I did the work on unprefixing it and totally completing the spec for a uh, WebKit, and Chromium is still behind and uh, uh, prefixed, etc. So um, in those two cases, uh, at least in the first one, it seems that you actually were doing two things: that you were first contributing to the standard. And after you contributed to the standard, you then went and implemented that standard in WebKit. Am I correct? I would say three things. Uh, the third one being web platform tests. So contrib contributing to three projects, yes. Uh, sometimes for an another project I'm currently working on, uh, I also go to something called the WICG, which is the incubator for uh, new standards. Like where it's like a forum where you can discuss ideas to, for new standards. So yeah, I work on uh, three three projects at the same time. By the way, standards um, and web platform tests are just GitHub projects with issues and pull requests. They're very easy to get into. If you see something in the standard you don't like, like don't keep it to yourself. There's a Slack for it, for it. There's a GitHub for it. Uh, there are sometimes video calls where web developers can just join. I was recently in a video call about pain timing where we fleshed out a lot of the issues and a lot of web devs joined and gave their feedback. It was great. Yeah, I can, I can certainly identify. I recently was involved in a conversation about uh, effective uh, type, which uh, is uh, uh, the browser exposing what it estimates your network quality to be like. So it might say that your network quality is, seems to be like 4G or seems to be like uh, fast 3G or, or stuff like that. 
and there was a whole discussion about uh, is this something Chrome implements it, other browsers do not. And there was a discussion about whether or not it's actually something that other browsers want to implement at, and what might be the use case. So I chimed in as somebody who's interested in other browsers implementing it and, and providing some use cases of where we at Wix would like to use it where, when it's available. Yeah, that's extremely valuable in those calls and the web devs get, uh, get a lot of say, actually. You know, somebody implementing those specs, like web devs is who I want to hear from. I still do web projects also. It keeps me real um, in that way. But yeah, I highly recommend joining in, joining in like the platform. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. So if I decide to start contributing and I'm kind of, you know, not sure which one, which project to choose, uh, WebKit or, or Chromium or Blink or Firefox, how do I choose which one to contribute to? Well, it really depends on, what, on why you want to do that what, and what you want to achieve. I think WebKit is a little easier to get into because it's, there's something more straightforward about it, about how you build WebKit, about how you run it, about how the whole thing works. Also about the project goal is just about web rendering. There's no WebKit OS, like there is Chromium OS. So I would say if you're looking for something that's easier to start with, I would say WebKit. On the other hand, it also relates to what you were saying about the, the thing with the effective type. Uh, WebKit folks are a lot more conservative in what they uh, put in the platform and allow to come in. In general, I see Apple as a more conservative company than Google. Google are about a, a lot of trial and error. Apple are more like, let's see if it's right for the web first. Let's see if it's right for a compatibility. Let's see if it's right for a security and privacy. So that's, that's like the other the flip coin of that. So question about that. So how much of control does Apple have over the WebKit project? I mean, you said that Apple are very conservative. So does that mean that in order to put something into WebKit, uh, Apple, you know, let's say I, I implement something as a pull request, somebody from Apple has to agree for this to go in? How does, what's the process like? So you would need a reviewer to approve it. However, a reviewer, not every reviewer will review every patch. It's not like something uh, exactly written. It's not like a, a rule, but it's a, um, how do you say, it? that's the convention. Like, let's say when I worked on, uh, the, um, on the, the Nokia specific parts of WebKit, WebKit has a lot of platform specific things. Uh, so when I worked on, on platform-specific things in WebKit that had to do with Nokia, I would review them, and I wouldn't need somebody from Apple to look at them also. Uh, but right now, when I'm implementing a, a paint timing or an image set, I would need uh, somebody who is uh, uh, familiar enough with the code to review it, and mostly that would be Apple folks. I actually believe that once that's in, uh, I would be able to review parts, changes to it, or uh, some changes to that. And uh, so the answer is, it depends. Out of curiosity, we were talking C++ all this time. Uh, Firefox, the code, is are they totally moved to Rust, or is it some C++ still? Do you know? I don't think Server is out yet. Server is uh, the Rust engine. So mm. the Firefox stuff is also still C++? Yeah. Uh, unless I missed some very big news about it, which happens, but uh, yeah, it's C++. Yeah, homework for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Anything else you would like to cover or mention in this context? I love the fact, you know, I, I mentioned uh, who sponsors these projects. I love the fact that I can work on all of this in the open, that uh, I can take pride in what I do, I can get feedback for what I do, I can get, you know, criticism for what I do, and it's all in the open. There's no, like, uh, I don't, there's no secrecy. I, I love that part about what I work on currently. 
what I think is super important is that uh, a lot of us as web developers uh, take the browser as a sort of, of as a given, as a fact of life, as you know, is something that's uh, that's either immutable or uh, something that we have uh, zero control over it. So, for example, if if somebody if something in the browser doesn't work as we would like it to work, there's a feature that we would have liked to to be different or is missing from you know we have it in one browser but it's missing from others. Then then we just complain a lot and then make do without. And I think the, the, one of the main points that you made here and I really liked a lot, is that we can actually fix these things. So if there's something in the browser that we don't like, if there's missing functionality, we can actually go in and, and you know, add it and just implement it. And then we benefit from it. And later on, everybody benefits from it. So I think that that's a really important point to, to take away from all this. Yeah, I wanted to give an example, which is... Uh, not my work, but it's work I, I've been highly uh, inspired by, uh, which is a CSS Grid. Uh, a lot of the CSS Grid work was done by a company called Egalia. It's friends of mine from uh, Spain. And who sponsored it was Bloomberg. Bloomberg has a lot of uh, web applications and websites. And they realized that fixing layout in browsers would be cheaper for them than doing all those workarounds in their JavaScript and CSS code. They just hired this company to, to make browsers do CSS layout, which is CSS grid, sorry, which um, solves all of these problems. Again, the flip point of that is that it's a long lead time. It takes a while for a browser to get released from the point you write your code, you fix until it's available for users. It's, uh, it's measured in a few months to a year. So that's the other side of it. If you need to fix a browser bug immediately, sometimes uh, you want to fix it in the browser and uh, have a workaround at the same time and uh, hopefully get rid of the workaround a little later. So Noam, I have a question for you. And this is tangentially related to what we've been talking about. Um, One topic of discussion that I've heard around different podcasts and different Places around the web is uh, the speed of change to the HTML spec itself as compared to CSS and JavaScript. You know, the one example that I've heard many times is that it took 10 years just to get the main element added to the HTML spec. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that and why the HTML spec seems to move much slower as compared to, say, the specs for CSS and JavaScript. I'm actually not sure if that's still the case. And I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer this question. Right now, all of those specs are kind of like uh, divided to multiple uh, little specs. Like there is no CSS specs. There is CSS images. There is uh, CSS backgrounds. HTML is divided. There's rendering. There's images. There's uh, form elements. Also, performance is, is divided to a lot of uh, little specs. I think in the end, it's up to uh, particular editors. But I, I think it's, it's a matter of opinion. It, it will be interesting to look at a particular use case, a uh, particular case, like the main element, and see why it took, it took a long time. But I'm not sure it's true for everything you want to add to HTML. I had good experience so far with adding things to it. I'm sorry, you had a what experience? Good experience? Yeah. Um, the few things I was involved in, it was mainly in the pain timing spec, but the few things that were added to the HTML spec were done pretty quickly. Okay. All right. Thank you. I think also that the the division the, the between all these different parts is sometimes a little bit fuzzy. I mean, for example, if we're looking at certain parts of, of the DOM API, like like the pain timings which we were talking about, is this you know part of the HTML? Uh, you know, it's part of the DOM, but it's not really about uh, HTML elements. So where exactly does that fit? And I think that, for example, in the DOM world, a lot of stuff for, is currently going on. For example, all the effort that Google is doing with Project Fugu. I don't know if and when it will make its way to other browsers, but that's a, certainly a lot of activity going on there. 
And another thing that I really like that's happening in the browsers is that we've browsers have become more extensible even from the web development side. So if before I go in and add functionality in C++, I, uh, these days with modern browsers, I can often prototype it or will be able to prototype it using uh, JavaScript and, and HTML and CSS. So, for example, we have web components as a mechanism that enables us to define new HTML elements, try them out and see how they work. Or soon, and soon we will have those aspects of uh, CSS uh, Houdini, which will enable us to try out new layouts implemented in JavaScript before we decide, hey, this is a great looking layout. We want to make it a native part of the browser itself. So hopefully all these capabilities will actually make it easier to enhance and extend these standards. At least that's what I hope. Right. Uh, That's kind of how things work today. There's usually a polyfill that comes with a new standard. CSS is a little harder to polyfill than HTML. JavaScript is easier in some cases. But uh, what you said about specs is true. Like paint timing is not part of anything. It's who's in charge of it is the web performance workgroup. It's divided more by workgroups and by uh, technologies. Uh, but part of paint timing is in the HTML spec. Like there's a part where it's reported is in a spec called rendering. So that's all true. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Okay, then let's start with picks. Uh, Steve, you were the last one to ask, so let's have you as the first one to provide picks. Actually, can you skip me for a bit and come back to me? No problem. Uh, AJ, you've sil- silently joined us. Are you up for picks? I had a good one, but then I didn't sleep very well, and it's on the tip of my tongue, but I'll have to pass for the moment. Okay, then we'll skip you as well and move over to Amy. Amy, hopefully you have some picks for us. <laughs> I do, third time's a charm. Um, I have picked this in the past, I think, but I'm going to pick it again because it's been a little while and it's uh, related to what we're talking about today. And that is a Blink On YouTube channel. So it's just, it's a Google conference that they put on every year. Um, Blink is a rendering engine that Chromium uses, and it's a bunch of talks about that. And this is what I use to kind of help me better understand what um, the rendering engine was doing when I was digging into all the CSS stuff that I dug into a couple of years ago. So that is going to be my pick. Man, I'm trying to think if I have anything else. Um, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> Uh, this CSS stuff is actually going to be some of the stuff that you're going to be talking about in the upcoming uh, remote conference. Oh, yep, yep. I completely forgot about that. It is. So we're all going to benefit from the time we got <laughs> into the rendering engine. Yes. <laughs> some good stuff. Cool. I'll go with my pick. Uh, my pick is going to be a bit weird, and it's going to be eggs. And the reason for this pick is that currently in Israel, we have this kind of strange situation where there's a shortage of eggs. You can hardly get any eggs in supermarkets. Yeah. It'd be terrible because I love eggs too. Oh my gosh, I would die. (laughs) So so yeah, they actually, you go to the uh, supermarket and they either don't have eggs at all or they'll ration them out and tell you you can only buy like uh, the one, like 12. Uh, I would 12 send you some or... eggs if I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're even selling this disgusting thing where it's like a milk carton, but it's filled with egg mix. I buy those too. I make oh, omelets. <laughs> every it's day. Egg... <laughs> it's egg whites. I mix my eggs with those to make yes. omelets. Yes, I have. That's my second breakfast every day is my uh, egg white omelet. <laughs> So I never realized how much 
I'm dependent on eggs for everything. Uh, I've got like uh, three young adults living at home with my wife and I, and the amount of eggs that we consume on a daily basis is ridiculous. And all of a sudden to be in a situation where there are not enough eggs uh, is, is, uh, is interesting. It's like uh, we have a full fridge, but no eggs. And then the kids will say, but there's nothing to eat. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so well, we're, we currently do have some eggs in the fridge. I've been, I've been able to, to round up some eggs, but uh, hopefully it's a situation that will be soon resolved. Uh, so that was my pick. Uh, Noam, how about you? Do you have any pick for us? Yes, I'm not familiar with your terminology, so I just uh, pick something that I want to recommend in any subject. Yes, have absolutely anything at all that you want to talk about in any context whatsoever. I, I, I apologize for, for that. I assume that, you know, for those of you who don't recall, Noam was actually on an episode of my JavaScript story. Uh, so, and I think there are pics there as well. So I assumed that you were familiar with that, but that was a while right. ago. So. Uh, I didn't um, remember so, yeah. the term. If you yeah. want, we'll skip you and see if Steve or AJ remembered their own pics by now. Yeah, I've got something. And by the way, Dan, I was going to mention that um, you seem to be quite the egg-centric family. <clears throat> but that sort of leads into uh, to my pick. I'm going to go with something sort of real general, but something I'm a very large practitioner of, and that's called the dad joke. So, you know, uh, just sort of general bad puns and mostly puns. Uh, I, do, I have a tradition that I started a couple of years ago at a, at a previous place of employment that started out as words of wisdom as sort of evolved, or as some would say, devolved into a dad joke. And so I post one a day uh, on my Facebook page. And it's, it's quite interesting to see the reactions of people that get used to them because they see me in the hallways and say, keep doing the dad jokes. You know, and a classic example is um, uh, probably one I posted today where I gave an example when I was at a restaurant uh, ordering dinner and the waiter says, are you ready to order? And I said, I'll have the rabbits too. And he says, only if you promise not to say, waiter, there's a hair in my soup after I bring it. And I think about it and say, I'll have the chicken. So stuff like that. But uh, there are a number of uh, Instagram accounts that I follow that post various and sundry dad jokes. And I can put those in the show note, but uh, it's quite entertaining. So if you recall, uh, Bruce Lawson, who was our guest uh, a while back, episode 421, talking about semantic HTML, uh, he's actually uh, a champ of these kinds of jokes, and he posts those, uh, these regularly in his Twitter account. So if you're interested uh, in these types of jokes, I highly recommend following Bruce on Twitter. I recommend following Bruce on Twitter in any event. He has some excellent content, but if you're into those kinds of jokes, you'll enjoy it even more. You can never have too many sources of good, bad jokes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's true. Uh, AJ, how about you? Has it moved past the tip of your tongue? Well, no, but it's okay because I can still do this. I can still do this. So this is going to be more like story time times two and a pick. That's still story time. It's all story time. All right. So first of all, I ordered a clothes, a portable clothes garment steamer on eBay with some eBay bucks that I got for back when I bought my, my new iMac and it got shipped to me, you know, and in the description, it's like, you know, shipping is going to take up to a month from China or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. But then it got shipped to me from Amazon prime the next day. And it turns out that the same item on Amazon Prime was like a dollar cheaper. So literally, I bought from someone on eBay who just made a buck by shipping it to me from Amazon instead of actually having it to sell. (laughs) That is ridiculous. But it was like reward certificates. So whatever, I was fine. Um, So number two, a lot of us, actually very few of us, well... Hmm. About a middle amount of us remember Nickelodeon Gak. And the annoying thing about Nickelodeon Gak was that it would get gritty and discolored because as you played with it, it would pick up like salt from the table or sugar or dirt or breadcrumbs or whatever, you know, like the more you played with it, the more it'd get like little granules of stuff in it or like it'd get hair from the carpet, you know, et cetera. 
I apologize for interrupting you, but it, it may be just me for not being from the States, but can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I'll get Man. there. <laughs> I'll get there. So it turns out that it wasn't, you know, a long-lasting, successful product. It probably didn't even have as good of a history as Pogs did. Certainly hasn't had the longevity of yo-yos. Um, but it got reappropriated as keyboard cleaner. Because what it does best is pick up dirt and hair and grime. So now you can you can buy this stuff and you get this bottle of Nickelodeon Gak, which is like silly putty. Or I mean, I'm sure they have different names for the type of putty that it is in different countries. But it's just it's just like a a putty that's made with like gar gum and glycerin and you know like common household cleaners. It's one of those like kids science experiments that you can find in a lot of books. Anyway, so it's like. It's like it's like a mix between Jello and Silly Putty, if you can uh, imagine that, or gelatin for people that aren't familiar with Jello. And and it turns out that it's being sold as keyboard cleaner, which is just genius. And I got mine, of course, you know, on on eBay with my with my like twenty dollars that I had. I was able to buy three things, and this one's really great. It's uh, it's called Super Clean. Do not rub, just press. Use with body hands. Ingredients, vegetable gum, bactericide, quaternium, fragrance, glycerin, water storage condition, keep away from direct sunlight and keep in a dry place, keep away from children, don't eat it. Check if you need to replace your super clean, compare the color. Bright Mexican flag, new in maximum cleaning and absorbing capacity, dirty Mexican flag that's been drugged through the mud, unavailable. Replace your super clean. Absorbs dirt and dust in cavities, ideal for all devices and surfaces. I just felt like people needed to know about that. And uh, number three, which is actually important, back on September of 2016, something happened that changed the world and no one knew. Vim 8 came out that natively supported packages. So all the while for the past four years where these battles have been going on between like Pathogen and Vundle and Vim Plug, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Vim has native package management. All you have to do is put pack load all in your VimRC, which might already cascade in there by default from the system VimRC. And then you just create a directory that's .vim slash pack slash doesn't matter what the name is, slash stack, uh, start. And then you get clone into that directory, whatever plugin you want. So typically, people just call the directory plugin. So you get clone into .vim slash pack slash plugins slash start. And then the folder name in there would be like sensible or syntastic or prettier, etc. And if you want to get your name on some high profile projects in the contributor list, just go pick any of your favorite Vim plugins and in the install section, just add the three lines of instruction of how to install it with Vim 8 plugins because no one is putting it in their readme. Everybody still has like, here's how you do it with Pathogen or Bundle or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it's like, no, you don't have to do any of that mess anymore. Like Vim does this on its own now. So that, I mean, like this is revolutionary. No one knows. I'm curious, aside from AJ, who here is using Vim? I have had a history with Vim. I use it off and on. Um, I like to keep, I can't talk. I like to keep my VimRC updated so that if I do decide to use it, it's ready to go. That said, like most of the time I'm using VS Code right now, but if I'm, I'm just weird. Like it depends on the code I'm writing. If I just know off like the top of my head exactly what I want to do, I'm going to pop open Vim. But if I am kind of like exploring a code base, then I want more like, just all the stuff that VS Code offers, uh, then I use that. I actually used to use VI in the very old days, but uh, I kind of left it and never looked back. So maybe I'm heretical or something. Well, if you don't have Vim Sensible as a plugin for Vim, then it behaves just like VI. And that is a terrible experience, not being able to use the arrow keys or backspace. Interestingly, 
I, so I've been doing a lot of the uh, GCP tutorials and they use Nano for everything and it's driving me nuts. I'm like, why do they not use Vim? What? I love, I always change my default uh, editor to be Nano from VI whenever okay. I get a new computer. Just, <laughs> I've never taken the time to, you know, learn all the keystrokes and all the VI ins and outs. It used to drive me nuts. And so I just like Nano because it's a little more, to me, it's a little more intuitive. Well, it has okay. the documentation uh, in the bottom bar there. Yeah, yeah that's true. that helps. Which like if, if Vim had something like that, which it totally could, somebody could, you know, make that plugin or it could, you know, suggest to be shipped as a default. You could just have a, a status bar at the bottom that has all the documentation and like a, set no help or something, make it disappear so you don't have to worry about it anymore. But yeah, Nano is definitely easier for someone that wants to be able to exit the text editor successfully and has never used Vim before. My muscle memory is still there, even though I don't use it like every single day intensely. (laughs) And finally, Noam, have you managed to come up with a pick for us? Yeah, uh, a couple of things that are... uh... Uh, present in my life during this uh, interesting times. One of them I call hyper-isolation. Like uh, when, when something goes wrong because of all this isolation, I try to make it more wrong. Like uh, just, to see, just to see how it feels. Like, for example, yeah, I can't go out and meet friends. So I also exited Facebook to see how much I really need all this social stuff. Can't get eggs, so I'll remove eggs and something else something in addition from my menu to see, to see how much I really need them. That's, this has been an interesting game, game uh, albeit some might not consider it uh, fun, uh, but it uh, was interesting for me. Uh, the other one is uh, just I find recently more about the art of storytelling, kind of like as its own art and its own performance. My, uh, my uh, partner, is a, uh, she's a storyteller in her profession. So every, I, I'm surrounded with stories all the time. And I find that what I do on this podcast is a story. When I create a patch for WebKit and has, have to explain what it is, it's a story. When I talk to a client, it's a story. So just the art of storytelling and everything is something that was present for me lately. That's just such an amazing tip. That's an excellent one. So everybody, I think uh, this is another episode of JavaScript Jabber over. Uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. I hope our listeners have as well. So everyone-